0: Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the February 2021 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook of Anuradha Gandhi's Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement. This is part two of three of the audiobook, picking up from part one yesterday, which concluded with section one of the audiobook, Liberal Feminism. We'll now pick it up with section two, Radical Feminism. Within bourgeois feminism, in the first phase of the women's movement in the 19th and early 20th centuries, liberalism was the dominant ideology. In the contemporary phase of the women's movement, radical feminism has had a strong impact, and in many ways, though diffused, many ideas and positions can be traced to the radical feminist argument. In contrast to the pragmatic approach taken by liberal feminism, radical feminism aimed to reshape society and restructure its institutions, which they saw as inherently patriarchal. Providing the core theory for modern feminism, radicals argued that women's subservient role in society was too closely woven into the social fabric to be unraveled without a revolutionary revamping of society itself. They strove to supplant hierarchical and traditional power relationships, which they saw as reflecting a male bias with non-hierarchical and anti-authoritarian approaches to politics and organization. In the second phase of feminism in the U.S., the radical feminists emerged from the social movements of the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement, the New Left Movement, and the anti-Vietnam War and Peace Movement. They were women who were dissatisfied with the role given to women in these movements and the way the New Left tackled the women's question in its writings, theoretical and popular. At the same time, none of them wanted to preserve the existing system. Hence, in its initial phase, the writings were a debate with Marxism, an attempt to modify or rewrite Marxism. Later on, as the radical feminist movement became strong, Marxism was cast aside. And the entire emphasis shifted to an analysis of the sex and gender system and patriarchy delinked from the exploitative capitalist system. In this contemporary phase of feminism, attention was focused on the origins of women's oppression, and many theoretical books were written trying to analyze the forms of women's oppression and tracing the roots of this oppression. Yet one thing that needs to be kept in mind, that is in all of their writing, is that they kept only their own society in mind. Hence all their criticism, description, and analysis deal with advanced capitalist societies, especially the U.S. In 1970, Kate Millett published the book Sexual Politics, in which she challenged the formal notion of politics and presented a broader view of power relationships, including the relationship between men and women in society. Kate Millett saw the relations between men and women as a relationship of power. Men's domination over women was a form of power in society. Hence, she titled her book Sexual Politics. Here, she made the claim that the personal was political, which became a popular slogan of the feminist movement. By the personal is political, what she meant was that the discontent individual women feel in their lives is not due to individual failings, but due to the social system which has kept women in subordination and oppresses her in so many ways. Her personal feelings are therefore political. In fact, she reversed the historical materialist understanding by asserting that the male-female relationship is a framework for all power relationships in society. According to her, this, quote, social caste, dominant men and subordinated women, supersedes all other forms of inequality, whether racial, political, or economic this is the primary human situation these other systems of oppression will continue because they get both logical and emotional legitimacy from oppression in this primary situation patriarchy according to her was male control over the private and public world according to her to eliminate patriarchy men and women must eliminate gender i.e sexual status role and temperament as they have been constructed under patriarchy Patriarchal ideology exaggerates the biological differences between men and women and subordinates women. Millett advocated a new society which would not be based on the sex-gender system and in which men and women are equal. At the same time, she argued that we must proceed slowly, eliminating undesirable traits like obedience among women and arrogance among men. Kate Millett's book was very influential for a long time, it's still considered a classic for modern radical feminist thinking. Another influential early writer was Shulamith Firestone, who argued in her book Dialectics of Sex, 1970, that the origins of women's subordination and man's domination lay in the reproductive roles of men and women. In this book, she rewrites Marx and Engels. While Engels had written about historical materialism as follows, quote, that view of the course of history which seeks the ultimate cause and great moving power of all historical events in the economic development of society in the changes of the modes of production and exchange in the consequent division of society into distinct classes and in the struggles of these classes against one another unquote. firestone rewrote this as follows quote historical materialism is that view of the course of history which seeks the ultimate cause and the great moving power of all historical events in the dialectic of sex, the division of society into two distinctly biological classes for procreative reproduction, and the struggles of these classes with one another, in the changes in the mode of marriage, reproduction, and child care created by these struggles, in the connected development of other physically differentiated classes, castes. And in the first division of labor based on sex, which developed into the economic cultural class system, Firestone focused on reproduction instead of production as the moving force of history. Further, instead of identifying social causes for women's condition, she stressed biological reasons for her condition and made it the moving force in history. She felt that the biological fact that women bear children, is the material basis for women's submission in society, and it needs a biological and social revolution to affect human liberation. She too was of the opinion that the sex-gender difference needs to be eliminated, and human beings must be androgynous. But she went further than Kate Millett in the solution she advocated to end women's oppression. She was of the opinion that unless women give up their reproductive role, and no longer bear children, and the basis of the existing family is changed, it is not possible to completely liberate women. Hence, according to her, unless natural reproduction was replaced by artificial reproduction, and the traditional biological family replaced by intentional family, biological divisions between the sexes could not be eliminated. Biological family is the family in which members are genetically connected, parents and children, while the intentional family, according to her, means a family chosen by friendship or convenience. She believed that if this change occurs, the various personality complexes that develop in present society will no longer exist. Others, such as Susan Brownmiller, wrote about how historically the first social conflict was between men and women. Man the hunter was prone to violence, and he subjugated women through rape. These writings set the tone for the women's movement, the more radical section of it, which was not satisfied with the efforts of liberal feminists to change laws and campaign on such issues. They gave the push to delve into women's traditional, hitherto-taken-for-granted reproductive role, into gender and sex differences, and to question the very structure of society as being patriarchal, hierarchical, and oppressive. They called for a total transformation of society. Hence, radical feminists perceive themselves as revolutionary rather than reformist. Their fundamental point is that the sex and gender system is the cause of women's oppression. They considered the man-woman relationship in isolation from the rest of the social system as a fundamental contradiction. As a result, their entire orientation and direction of analysis and action deals primarily with this contradiction, and this has taken them towards separatism. Since they focused on the reproductive role of women, they make sexual relations, family relations, as the central targets of their attack to transform society. Sex, Gender, System, and Patriarchy. The central point in the radical feminist understanding is the sex and gender system. According to a popular definition given by Gail Rubin, the sex and gender system is a, quote, set of arrangements by which a society transforms biological sexuality into products of human activity, unquote. This means that patriarchal society uses certain facts about male and female physiology, sex, as the basis for constructing a set of masculine and feminine identities and behavior genders, that serve to empower men and disempower women, that is, how a man should be and how a woman should be. This, according to them, is the ideological basis of women's subordination. Society is somehow convinced that these culturally determined behavior traits are, quote, natural. Therefore, they said that, quote, normal behavior depends on one's ability to display the gender identities and behavior that society links with one's biological sex. Initially, the radical feminists, e.g. the Boston Group or the Radical New York Group, upheld Kate Millett's and Firestone's views and focused on the ways in which the concept of femininity and the reproductive and sexual roles and responsibilities, child rearing, etc., served to limit women's development as full persons. So they advocated androgyny. Androgyny means being both male and female, having the traits of both male and female, so that rigid, sex-defined roles don't remain. This means that women should adopt some male traits, and men adopt some female traits. But later, in the late 1970s, one section of radical feminists rejected the goal of androgyny and believed that it meant that women should learn some of the worst features of masculinity. Instead, they proposed that women should affirm their femininity. Women should try to be more like women, i.e. emphasize women's virtues such as interdependence, community, connection, sharing, emotion, body, trust, absence of hierarchy, nature, imminence, process, joy, peace, and life. From here onwards, their entire focus became separatist. Women should relate only to women. They should build a women's culture and women's institutions. With this, even their understanding about sexuality changed, and they believed that women should become lesbians, and they supported monogamous lesbian relations as the best for women. Politically, they became pacifist. Violence and aggression are masculine traits, according to them, that should be rejected. They say women are naturally peace-loving and life-giving. By building alternative institutions, they believed they were bringing revolutionary change. They began building women's clubs, making women's films, and other forms of separate women's culture. In their understanding, revolutionary transformation of society will take place gradually. This stream is called the cultural feminist trend because they are completely concentrating on the culture of society. They are not relating culture to the political economic structure of society. But this became the main trend of radical feminism and is intertwined with eco-feminism, post also. Among the well-known cultural feminists are Marilyn French and Mary Daly. Sexuality, Heterosexuality, and Lesbianism Since man-woman relations are the fundamental contradiction for radical feminists, they have played a great deal of attention to sexual relations between men and women. Sexuality has become the arena where most of the discussions and debates of radical feminism got concentrated. The stand of the Christian churches in the West regarding various issues, including sex and abortion, has been extremely conservative. This is more so in countries like the U.S., France, and Italy. Christian morality has defended sex only after marriage and opposed abortion. The radical feminist theorists confronted these questions head-on. At the same time, they also exposed how, in a patriarchal society within sexual relations, even within marriage, women often feel a sense of being dominated. It is in this background that questions of sexual repression, compulsory heterosexuality, and homosexuality or sexual choice became issues of discussion and debate. The radical feminists believe that in a patriarchal society, even in sexual relations and practices, male domination prevails. This has been termed as repression by the first trend An ideology of sexual objectification by the cultural feminists. According to them, sex is viewed as bad, dangerous, and negative. The only sex permitted and considered acceptable is marital heterosexual practice. Heterosexuality means sexual relations between people of different sexes, that is, between men and women. There is pressure from patriarchal society to be heterosexual, and sexual minorities, such as lesbians, transvestites, transsexuals, etc., are considered as intolerable. Sexual pleasure, a powerful natural force, is controlled by patriarchal society by separating so-called good, normal, healthy sexual practice from bad, unhealthy, illegitimate sexual practice. But the two streams have very different understandings of sexuality, which also affects the demands they make and the solutions they offer. According to the radical feminist trend, sexual repression is one of the crudest and most irrational ways for the forces of civilization to control human behavior. Permissiveness is in the best interests of women and men. On the contrary, the cultural feminists consider that heterosexual sexual relations are characterized by an ideology of objectification, in which men are masters and subjects, and women are slaves and objects. Quote, Heterosexualism has certain similarities to colonialism, particularly in its maintenance through force, when paternalism is rejected, and in the portrayal of domination as natural, and in the de-skilling of women, Sarah Lucia Hoagland This is a form of male sexual violence against women. Hence, feminists should oppose any sexual practice that normalizes male sexual violence. According to them, women should reclaim control over their sexuality by developing a concern with their own sexual priorities, which differ from the priorities of men. Women, they say, desire intimacy and caring rather than the performance. Hence, they advocated that women should reject heterosexual relations with men and become lesbians. On the other hand, the radicals believed that women must seek their pleasure, not make rules. For the cultural feminists, heterosexuality is about male domination and female subordination, and so it sets the stage for pornography, prostitution, sexual harassment, and woman battering. Hence, they advocated that women should give up heterosexual relations and go into lesbian relations in which there is emotional involvement. Cultural feminists emphasized the need to develop the essential femaleness of women. Lesbianism was pushed strongly within the women's movement in the West in the early 80s, but it receded a few years later. The solution offered by cultural feminists to end the subordination of women is breaking the sexual relationship between men and women with women forming a separate class themselves. The first trend are advocating free sexual relations, delinked from any emotional involvement, whether with men or with women. In fact, the solutions which they are promoting make an intimate human relationship into a commodity type of impersonal relationship. From here, it is one step to support pornography and prostitution. While the cultural feminists strongly opposed pornography, the Radicals did not agree that pornography had any adverse impact on the way men viewed women. Instead, they believed that pornography could be used to overcome sexual repression. Even on questions of reproductive technology, the two sides differed. While the Radicals supported tech, the cultural feminists were opposed to it. The cultural feminists were of the opinion that women should not give up motherhood since this is the only power they have. They have been active in the ethical debates raised by Reprotech, like rights of the surrogate or biological mother. Critique From the account given above, it is clear that radical feminists have stood Marxism on its head, so to speak. Though we will deal with Firestone's arguments in the section on socialist feminists, some points need to be mentioned. In their understanding of material conditions, they have taken the physical fact of reproduction and women's biological role as the central point for their analysis, and concluded that this is the main reason for women's oppression. Marx had written that production and reproduction of life are the two basic conditions for human existence. Reproduction means both the reproduction of the person on a day-to-day basis and the reproduction of the human species. But in fact, reproduction of the species is something humans share with the animal kingdom. That could not be the basis for women's oppression for in all the thousands of years that people lived in the first stages of human existence, women were not subordinated to men. In fact, her reproductive role was celebrated and given importance because the survival of the species and the group depended on reproduction. The importance given to fertility and the fertility rituals surviving in most tribal societies are testimony to this fact. Marxism understands that some material conditions had to arise due to which the position of women changed and she was subordinated. The significant change in material conditions came with the generation of considerable surplus production. How this surplus would be distributed is the point at which classes arose, the surplus being appropriated by a small number of leading people in the community. Her role in reproduction, the cause of her elevated status earlier, became a means of her enslavement, which clan or extended family the children she bore belonged to became important, and it is then that we find restrictions on her and the emergence of the patriarchal family, in which the woman was subordinated, and her main role in society was begetting children for that family. Radical feminists have treated historical development and historical facts lightly, and imposed their own understanding of man-woman contradiction as the original contradiction, and the principal contradiction which has determined the course of actual history. From this central point, the radical feminist analysis abandons history altogether, ignores the political economic structure, and concentrates only on the social and cultural aspects of advanced capitalist society, and projects the situation there as the universal condition. This is another major weakness in their analysis and approach. Since they have taken the man-woman relationship or sex-gender relationship as the central contradiction in society, all their analysis proceeds from it and men become the main enemies of women. Since they do not have any concrete strategy to overthrow the society, they shift their entire analysis to a critique of the superstructural aspects: the culture, language, concepts, ethics, without concerning themselves with the fact of capitalism and the role of capitalism in sustaining this sex and gender relationship and hence the need to include the overthrow of capitalism in their strategy for women's liberation. While making extremely strong criticisms of the patriarchal structure, the solutions they offer are in fact reformist. Their solutions are focused on changing roles and traits and attitudes and the moral values in creating an alternative culture. Practically, It means people can, to some extent, give up certain values. Men can give up aggressive traits by recognizing them as patriarchal. Women can try to be bolder and less dependent. But when the entire structure of society is patriarchal, how far can these changes come without an overthrow of the entire capitalist system is a question they do not address at all. So it ends up turning into small groups trying to change their lifestyle, their interpersonal relations a focus on the interpersonal rather than the entire system. Though they began by analyzing the entire system and wanting to change it, their line of analysis has taken them in reformist channels. Women's liberation is not possible in this manner. The fault lies with their basic analysis itself. The cultural feminists have gone one step further by emphasizing the essential differences between males and females and claiming that female traits and values, not feminine, are desirable. This argument gives the biological basis of male-female differences more importance than social upbringing. This is in fact a counterproductive argument because conservative forces in society have always used such arguments, called biological determinism, to justify domination over a section of the people. The slaves were slaves because they had those traits and they needed to be ruled, couldn't look after themselves. Women are women and men are men and they are basically different so social roles for women and men are also different. This is the argument given by reactionary conservative forces which are opposed to women's liberation. Hence the basic argument they are putting forward has dangerous implications and can and will rebound on the struggle of women for change. Masculinity and femininity are constructs of a patriarchal society and we have to struggle to change these rigid constructs but it is linked to the overthrow of the entire exploitative society. In a society where patriarchal domination ceases to exist, how men and women will be, what kind of traits they will adopt is impossible for us to say. The traits that human beings will then adopt will be in consonance with the type of society that will exist, since there can be no human personality outside some social framework. Seeking this femaleness is like chasing a mirage and amounts to self-deception. By making heterosexualism as the core point in their criticism of the present system, they encouraged lesbian separatism and thus took the women's movement to a dead end. Apart from forming small communities of lesbians and building an alternative culture, they could not and have not been able to take one step forward to liberate the mass of women from the exploitation and oppression they suffer. It's impractical and unnatural to think that women can have a completely separate existence from men. They have completely given up the goal of building a better human society. This strategy is not appealing to the large mass of women. Objectively, it became a diversion from building a broad movement for women's liberation. The radical trend by supporting pornography and giving the abstract argument of free choice has taken a reactionary turn, providing justification and support to the sex tourism industry promoted by the imperialists, which is supporting locks, hundreds of thousands of women, from oppressed ethnic communities and from the third world countries to sexual exploitation and untold suffering. While criticizing hypocritical and repressive sexual mores of the reactionary bourgeoisie and the church, the radical trend has promoted an alternative which only further alienates human beings from each other and debases the most intimate of human relations. Separating sex from love and intimacy, human relations become mechanical and inhuman. Further, their arguments are in absolute isolation from the actual circumstances of women's lives and their bitter experiences. Maria Mies has made a critique of this whole trend which sums up the weakness of this approach. Quote, "...the belief in education, cultural action, or even cultural revolution as agents of change is a typical belief of the urban middle class." With regard to the women's question, it's based on the assumption that women's oppression has nothing to do with basic material production relations. This assumption is found more among Western, particularly American feminists, who usually do not talk of capitalism. For many Western feminists, women's oppression is rooted in the culture of patriarchal civilization. For them, therefore, feminism is largely a cultural movement, a new ideology, or a new consciousness," unquote. that is from 1986. This cultural feminism dominated western feminism and influenced feminist thinking in third world countries as well. It unites well with the postmodernist trend and has deflected the entire orientation of the women's movement from being a struggle to change the material conditions of life of women to an analysis of quote, "representations and symbols." They have opposed the idea of women becoming a militant force because they emphasize the nonviolent nature of the female. They are disregarding the role women have played in wars against tyranny throughout history. Women will, and ought to continue to play, an active part in just wars meant to end oppression and exploitation. Thus, they will be active participants in the struggle for change. Summing up, we can see that the radical feminist trend has taken the women's movement to a dead end by advocating separatism for women. The main weaknesses in the theory and approach are, one, taking a philosophically idealist position by giving central importance to personality traits and cultural values rather than material conditions, ignoring the material situation in the world completely and focusing only on cultural aspects. 2. Making the contradiction between men and women as the principal contradiction, thereby justifying separatism. 3. Making a natural fact of reproduction as the reason for women's subordination, and rejecting socio-economic reasons for the social condition of oppression, thereby strengthening the conservative argument that men and women are naturally different. 4. Making women's and men's natures immutable. 5 ignoring the class differences among women and the needs and problems of poor women. 6. By propagating women's nature as nonviolent, they are discouraging women from becoming fighters in the struggle for their own liberation and that of society. 7. In spite of claiming to be radical, having completely reformist solutions, which cannot take women's liberation forward. And that is the end of section two, liberal feminism. We're now moving on to section three, anarcho-feminism. The feminist movement has been influenced by anarchism, and the anarchists have considered the radical feminists closest to their ideals. Hence, the body of work called anarcho-feminism can be considered as being very much a part of the radical feminist movement. Anarchists consider all forms of government or state as authoritarian and private property is tyrannical. They envisaged the creation of a society which would have no government, no hierarchy, and no private property. While the anarchist ideas of Bakunin, Kropotkin, and other classic anarchists have been an influence, the famous American anarchist Emma Goldman has particularly been influential in the feminist movement. Emma Goldman, a Lithuanian by birth, migrated to the U.S. in 1885 and, as a worker in various garment factories, came into contact with anarchist and socialist ideas. She became an active agitator, speaker, and campaigner for anarchist ideas. In the contemporary feminist movement, the anarchists circulated Emma Goldman's writings and her ideas have been influential. anarcho feminists agree that there is no one version of anarchism, but within the anarchist tradition, they share a common understanding on 1. a criticism of existing societies, focusing on relations of power and domination, 2. a vision of an alternate, egalitarian, non-authoritarian society, along with claims about how it could be organized, and 3. a strategy for moving from one to the other. They envisaged a society in which human freedom is ensured, but believe that human freedom and community go together. But the communities must be structured in a way that makes freedom possible. There should be no hierarchies or authority. Their vision is different from the Marxist and liberal tradition, but is closest to what the radical feminists are struggling for, the practice they are engaged in. For the anarchists believe that means must be consistent with the aims. The process by which revolution is being brought about, the structures must reflect the new society and relations that have to be created. Hence, the process and the form of organization are extremely important. According to the anarchists, dominance and subordination depends on hierarchical social structures which are enforced by the state and through economic coercion, that is, through control over property, etc. Their critique of society is not based on classes and exploitation or on the class nature of the state, etc., but is focused on hierarchy and domination. The state defends and supports these hierarchical structures and decisions at the central level are imposed on those subordinate in the hierarchy. So for them, hierarchical social structures are the roots of domination and subordination in society. This leads to ideological domination as well because the view that is promoted and propagated is the official view, the view of those who dominate, about the structures and its processes. Anarchists are critical of Marxists because, according to them, revolutionaries are creating hierarchical organizations, the party, through which to bring about the change. According to them, once a hierarchy is created, it is impossible for people at the top to relinquish their power. Hence, they believe that the process by which the change is sought to be brought about is equally important. Quote, within a hierarchical organization, we cannot learn to act in non-authoritarian ways, unquote. Anarchists give emphasis to propaganda by deed, by which they mean exemplary actions, which by positive example encourage others to also join. The anarcho-feminists give examples of groups that have created various community-based activities, like running a radio station or a food cooperative in the U.S., in which non-authoritarian ways of running the organization have been developed. They have given central emphasis on small groups without hierarchy and domination. But the functioning of such groups in practice, their hidden tyrannical leadership, that gets created has led to many criticisms of them. The problems encountered included hidden leadership, having leaders imposed by the media, overrepresentation of middle-class women with lots of time on their hands, or lack of task groups which women could join, hostility towards women who showed initiative or leadership. When communists raised the question that the centralized state controlled by the imperialists, needs to be overthrown, they admit that their efforts are small in nature, and there is a need of coordinating with others and linking up with others. But they're not willing to consider the need for a centralized revolutionary organization to overthrow the state. Basically, according to their theory, the capitalist state is not to be overthrown, but it has to be outgrown. Quote, how we proceed against the pathological state structure, perhaps the best word is to outgrow, rather than overthrow, unquote, from an Anarcha Feminist Manifesto, Siren, 1971. From their analysis, it's clear that they differ strongly from the revolutionary perspective. They don't believe in the overthrow of the bourgeois imperialist state as the central question, and prefer to spend their energy in forming small groups involved in cooperative activities. In the era of monopoly capitalism, it's an illusion to think that such activities can expand and grow and gradually engulf the entire society. They will only be tolerated in a society with excess surplus like the U.S. as an oddity, an exotic plant. Such groups tend to get co-opted by the system in this way. Radical feminists have found these ideas suitable for their views and have been very much influenced by anarchist ideas of organization, or there has been a convergence of anarchist views of organization and the radical feminist views on the same. Another aspect of anarcho-feminist ideas is their concern for ecology, and we find that ecofeminism has also grown out of anarcho-feminist views. As it is, anarchists in the Western countries are active on the environmental question. That's the end of section three, starting section four, ecofeminism. Ecofeminism also has close links with cultural feminism, although ecofeminists themselves distinguish themselves. Cultural feminists like Mary Daly have taken an approach in their writing which comes close to an eco-feminist understanding. Inestra King, Vandana Shiva, and Maria Mies are among the known eco-feminists. Cultural feminists have celebrated women's identification with nature in art, poetry, music, and communes. They identify women and nature against male culture. So, for example, they are active anti-militarists. They blame men for war and point out that masculine preoccupation is with death-defying deeds. Ecofeminists recognize that socialist feminists have emphasized the economic and class aspects of women's oppression, but criticize them for ignoring the question of the domination of nature. Feminism and ecology are the revolt of nature against human domination. They demand that we rethink the relationship between humanity and the rest of nature, including our natural embodied selves. In ecofeminism, nature is the central category of analysis, the interrelated domination of nature, psyche and sexuality, human oppression and non-human, and the social historical position of women in these. This is the starting point for ecofeminism, according to Anestra King, and in practice it has been seen, according to her, that women have been in the forefront of struggles to protect nature, The example of Chipko and Dolan, in which village women clung to trees to prevent the contractors from cutting the trees, in Terry Garwal proves this point, according to them. There are many streams within ecofeminism. There are the spiritual ecofeminists who consider their spiritualism as main, while the more worldly believe in active intervention to stop the destructive practices. They say that the nature-culture dichotomy must be dissolved and our oneness with nature brought out. Unless we all live more simply, some of us won't be able to live at all. According to them, there is room for men, too, in this Save the Earth movement. There is one stream among ecofeminists who are against the emphasis on nature-women connection. Women must, according to them, minimize their socially constructed and ideologically reinforced special connection with nature. The present division of the world into male and female, culture and nature, men for culture-building and women for nature-building, child-rearing and child-bearing, must be eliminated and oneness emphasized. Men must bring culture into nature, and women should take nature into culture. This view has been called social-constructionist eco-feminism. Thinkers like Warren believe that it is wrong to link women to nature, because both men and women are equally natural and equally cultural. Mies and Shiva, combined insights from socialist feminism, the role of capitalist patriarchy, with insights from global feminists who believe that women have more to do with nature in their daily work around the world, and from postmodernism, which criticizes capitalism's tendency to homogenize the culture around the world. They believed that women around the world had enough similarity to struggle against capitalist patriarchies and the destruction it spawns taking examples of struggles by women against ecological destruction, by industrial or military interests, to preserve the basis of life, they conclude that women will be in the forefront of the struggle to preserve the ecology. They advocate a subsistence perspective, in which people must not produce more than that needed to satisfy human needs, and people should use nature only as much as needed, not to make money, but to satisfy community needs. Men and women should cultivate traditional feminine virtues, caring, compassion, nurturing, and engage in subsistence production, for only such a society can, quote, afford to live in peace with nature and uphold peace between nations, generations, and men and women, unquote. Women are nonviolent by nature, they claim, and support this. They are considered as transformative ecofeminists but the theoretical basis for Vandana Shiva's argument in favor of subsistence agriculture is essentially reactionary. She makes a trenchant criticism of the Green Revolution and its impact as a whole, but from the perspective that it is a form of quote, Western patriarchal violence against women and nature. She counterposes patriarchal Western, rational science with non-Western wisdom. The imperialists used the developments in agro-science to force the peasantry to increase their production, to avoid a red revolution, and to become tied to the MNC-sponsored market for agricultural inputs like seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides. But Shiva is rejecting agroscience altogether and uncritically defending traditional practices. She claims that traditional Indian culture, with its dialectical unity of purusha and prakriti, was superior to the Western philosophical dualism of man and nature, man and culture, etc., etc., Hence, she claims that in this civilization, where production was for subsistence, to satisfy the vital basic needs of people, women had a close connection with nature. The Green Revolution broke this link between women and nature. In actual fact, what Shiva is glorifying is the petty pre-capitalist peasant economy with its feudal structures and extreme inequalities. In this economy, women toiled for long hours in backbreaking labor with no recognition of their work. She doesn't take into account the 40 condition of Dalit and other lower caste women who toiled in the fields and houses of the feudal landlords of that time, abused, sexually exploited, and unpaid most of the time. Further, the subsistence life was not based on enough for all. In fact, women were deprived of even the basic necessities in this glorified pre-capitalist period. They had no claim over the means of production, they were not independent either. This lack of independence is interpreted by her and Mies as the third-world women's rejection of self-determination and autonomy, for they value their connection with the community. What women value as support structures, when they do not have any alternative before them, is being projected as a conscious rejection of self-determination by Shiva. In effect, they are upholding the patriarchal pre-capitalist subsistence economy in the name of eco-feminism and in the name of opposing Western science and technology a false dichotomy has been created between science and tradition. This is a form of culturalism or postmodernism that is involved in defending the traditional patriarchal cultures of third world societies and opposing development of the basic masses in the name of attacking the development paradigm of capitalism. We are opposed to the destructive and indiscriminate push given by profit-hungry imperialist agribusiness to agrotechnology, including genetically modified seeds, etc., We are not against the application of science and agrotechnology to improving agricultural production. Under the present class relations, even science is the handmaiden of the imperialists, but under a democratic socialist system, this will not be so. It's important to retain what is positive in our tradition, but to glorify it all is anti-people. Ecofeminists idealize the relationship of women with nature and also lack a class perspective. Women from the upper classes whether in advanced capitalist countries or in the backward countries like India, hardly show any sensitivity to nature, so absorbed are they in the global consumerist culture encouraged by imperialism. They don't think that imperialism is a worldwide system of exploitation. They have shown no willingness to change their privileges and basic lifestyle in order to reduce the destruction of the environment. For peasant women, the destruction of the ecology has led to untold hardships, for them in carrying out their daily chores like procuring fuel, water, and fodder for cattle. Displacement due to takeover of their forests and lands for big projects also affects them badly. Hence, these aspects can and have become rallying points for mobilizing them in struggles. But from this, we cannot conclude that women as against men have a, quote, natural tendency to preserve nature. The struggle against monopoly capitalism that is relentlessly destroying nature, is a political struggle, a people's issue, in which the people as a whole, men and women, must participate. And though the ecofeminist quote the Chipko struggle, in fact, there are so many other struggles in our country in which both men and women have agitated on what can be considered as ecological issues and their rights. The Narmada agitation, the agitation of villagers in Orissa against major mining projects and against nuclear missile projects or the struggle of tribals in Bastar and Jharkhand against the destruction of forests and major steel projects are examples of this. And that is the end of Section 4, Ecofeminism. The next section is Section 5, Socialist Feminism. We're going to take that up in Part 3 of this audiobook, which will be available on the channel tomorrow. And that's the video. Thanks to our current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen or just support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash socialism for all and sign up for a monthly donation. You can also follow us at facebook.com slash socialism. The number for all used to have a page at F O R all, and it got throttled to death by Zuck here on YouTube. Please click the like button subscribe button and the notifications bell please leave a comment if you can, and please share our video wherever you're online, your Twitter feed, your Discord servers, Reddit subs, etc. All of that helps more people to see this content, whether it's in the YouTube algorithm or just posting it on other sites, all of that's helpful. All of you out there supporting and promoting this content makes it all go that much more smoothly. We need to end capitalism, normalize talking about socialism today, And, uh, it's really kind of our only hope for a better tomorrow. Thanks for all you do, and we will catch you in the next video.